So my parents met when they were very, very young. My mother was 17 and my father was 24 or 23 at the time they met in New York. They got married. They ended up in Oklahoma. That was their landing spot. And I think because they were married so young, they used to fight a lot. My mother had moved from her family home in with my father. My father was the stereotypical immigrant story. And so he landed here and really didn't know what was happening with our cultures either. And so they were both in this kind of unknown space when they met and they got married and they decided to have me and my brother. And so for the younger years of our lives, my brother and I, and actually theirs too, they fought a lot. They fought like a brother and sister would. And only recently did my father say, you know, I always felt like a father to her. And so it really gave me the look on their marriage as being a father, daughter, I'm the protector, the provider, and you're the young child. And so she always played that role so beautifully. And she also played the role of the pretty, pretty princess so beautifully also. So, you know, she loved to be the girly girl and and do all those things. But something happened in their marriage. They really stopped choosing each other. And they would fight a lot about stupid shit. Even to this day, I can't pinpoint what it was. I just know that it was really meaningless shit. I realized I was a professional liar when my mother walked into my bedroom and she said to me, so I want you to explain this to me. It was Playgirl magazine sent to Mary Bryan. I said, it must have been a mistake. Mary Bryan, really? Mary Bryan, really? I mean, Mike, Mary, Mary, Mike, Mike, Mary, Mary, Mike, this is the best you can do? Are you gay? This is the constant discussion. I realized at one point that I had become such a good liar that I didn't know where truth and fiction collided. So I decided I had to do something when this thing occurred. I wrote away when I was very young. In the back of Mad Magazine, you could get fake IDs. So I wrote away, and I got a fake ID. That said, I was 18 years old. Now, as we talked about before, I was taking the bus from little old Mount Lake Terrace to downtown Seattle. And for reasons I didn't quite understand at the time, I was using this fake ID when I was 12, 13 to go to porn movies. And so my mother used to say to me, she's like, so did you go study today? And I was like, yeah. Really? Seven hours you've been studying? The library? Uh Uh-huh. What I had done, of course, was I had gotten the paper, clipped out the section with the porn movies in them, saw the Showtimes. They had Showtimes back then. Isn't that cute? And looked at the bus schedule. So I had a bus schedule next to the porn movie times, and I had to map out when my mother was going to be at her swim class and that I had to figure out when I was going to get on the bus to get to the porn movie, to see a couple of porn movies, to have old men jerk me off, to make a bunch of money, to take the money, to put it in my pocket, to buy comic books and records, to come back to the house and tell her that I had actually been at the library studying. Hi, I'm Michael C. Bryan. And I'm Jennifer Ho. 
We help people understand the purpose of their pain. We've been through a lot and we've come out the other side. We talk about everything and anything. Especially what other people are afraid to talk about. Life is an invitation to do whatever the fuck you want. And it's definitely time to look at how we're playing the game. We held ourselves back for years. But now we're mostly past all of that shit. Mostly. Welcome, Welcome to, to Stripped. And so the fighting started to escalate from yelling and screaming to my mother throwing telephones at him and gashing, you know, creating a huge gash in his head and it bleeding and her throwing him up against the wall. She was 5'11", he was 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, and so it was a very physically abusive household where my mother was the abuser and my father was the passive one. So in the midst of all of this, there were some kind of rumblings of my mother cheating. There were rumblings of my father cheating. And one day, my father had brought home one of his co-workers. Interestingly enough, her name was Lisa. My mother's name is also Lisa. And I had seen over the years that they had both been lacking in their relationship to each other. My mother wanted more romance. My father just wanted some fucking stability. And so my father went outside the relationship, brought this woman home. And I remember she w we were all sitting at the dining room table and we were all talking. And I didn't know who she was. It was just daddy's friend. I must have been eight, maybe seven, eight, nine, somewhere around there. And I said, oh, you know, she's a really nice lady and how funny it is that she's got my mother's name and, you know, she's very pretty and it's nice. I wonder if my mom knows her too and why is she over here without my mother? And my brother was just off playing whatever. He was about six at the time and he was just playing his video games or running around or whatever. And I'm sitting at the table trying to be an adult with these two other adults and finding out what the situation is. So, of course, I'm automatically reading them in their body language. And I don't see anything really funny. But I decided to take out this piece of paper and start writing. I used to doodle a lot. And that would be something that I would do to bide my time. And so I have this pencil in my hand. And I'm doodling. And I'm really enjoying this. I'm drawing little squiggly lines and everything else. And all of a sudden, it flips out of my hand and it lands on the floor. Like, oh, shit, okay. So I bend over to pick up this pencil, and I look over, and I see them playing footsies underneath the table. My mother always knew when I was lying. She always knew. And she used to say to me, she's like, you're lying. I can tell you're lying. So I realized I had to create a system to keep track of all of them. So I created a, a, a lie journal where I would write down the truth and then I would write down the lie so that I couldn't make a mistake. The lying got to the point where I was doing things that I would see myself doing and I couldn't figure out why I was doing them. Like I would steal money from my father's wallet and they'd say, did you take money from the wallet? And I would, I would of course, lie and say no. And they're like, yeah, but there's no money in there. And I had to figure out the way in which I was telling these half-truths and not. The strange thing was my mother could always tell when I wasn't telling the truth to the point where I didn't know what the truth was and what I didn't know what the lie was. When I was older, I ended up telling people stories like in high school, they said, so what have you been doing this summer? And I said, oh, well, I was on the soundtrack for Thank God It's Friday. 
And they said, really? I said, yeah, I sang um, Trapped Under a Staircase. And they said, really? And they said, but we, Paul Jabera is the guy who sings it. I said, no, that was me. And I actually believed it. And that, that's where it, it was kind of strange to me that I didn't realize what was true and what wasn't. When I got older, I was in jobs where I would steal. And I couldn't figure out why I was stealing. And, you know, my therapists at the time were very sweet. They're like, well, you're not making much money at that job, so it makes sense that you would steal. But I couldn't ever figure out why I would be voluntarily doing something that would screw up my work life. And I've, I've thought about this a long time, why the lying was so huge for so long for me, and that the journals were a record, it's like an indictment of what I was doing wrong, an indictment of what was true and what wasn't. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I spent so much of my childhood inside my head, inside this place that was other than the reality with which I was living at the time. I wanted something to be different. I wanted to be different. I didn't want to be who I was. I didn't want to be living where I was. I didn't want to be the person I was. It's like who I was and the life I was living was never enough. Wow, this is really interesting. I don't I don't know if you really play footsies with friends. So it really sparked off this conversation for me. Wow, what is the secret that my father is holding? Are they really friends? But at that age, you really don't understand cheating either. You just know there's a line being crossed here. So at that point, I knew that maybe I was just, you know, thinking weird things and maybe that's what friends did. Maybe my dad and her were really close. You know, I like to play with my friends and we always, you know, do each other's hair and do funny stuff with each other, but I'll just keep this one to myself. It's no big deal. So I held on to that for quite a while. And about a month later, I get a on my bedroom door. What's going on? Mommy, what's going on? What's going on, Mom? She's like, get up. You need, you need to, we're, we're going now. We're going now. Get your brother. Now I'm in a full pink onesie with the footies attached. Something like what you see in that Christmas story movie. And that's exactly what I look like. So I roll out of bed. I'm groggy. My hair is a mess. I'm like, Jonathan, we got to get up. Mom, Mommy's telling us to get up. And I look over at the clock, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning. She goes, get in the car. Okay, but Mommy, what, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Just get in the car. So she throws us in the backseat of her blue Toyota Corolla. So back then it was a hatchback. And we're sitting back there, and we pull up to a diner. I said, Mommy, why are we having breakfast? It's so early in the morning. It's like the middle of the night. Honey, just get out. Come on, we're going to go have breakfast. Okay, okay, okay. So we get into this diner, and to this day, I don't know what song it is, but when it does come on the radio, I can remember the song that was playing in the diner. And I always forget right after I say, oh, that's the song. <laughs> But so I was sitting there, and I looked at my mother, and she was distraught. Her face was a mess. She looked like she had been up all night crying. And I'm looking at my brother, and he's holding on to his little stuffed animal monkey for dear life because he has no idea what's going on either. And I look at her, and I'm like, Mommy, why, why are we here? It's the middle of the night. Where's Daddy? Well, honey, 
Daddy decided that he wanted to go be with another woman, and that's where he's at right now, so we're going to go look for him. Funny thing about this story is that I don't remember what happened after that. It's a dead blur, but I do remember connecting the dots of my father playing footsies with Lisa, the other one, and him cheating. And that was really the first time that I saw what a marriage looked like. I thought that's actually what marriage was supposed to look like. It looked like a struggle always to me. I, I didn't understand what a normal marriage or relationship looked like. But after that, the fighting ensued, and my father was kicked out of the house, and I'll never forget the day that he goes out. Now, in the 1980s, they had these ginormous clamshell <laughs> luggages with the one little plastic handle in the middle and the two little clips on the side, and he was carrying it, and he always had uh, like a little bit of clothing sticking out the sides, and he was crying, and it was one of the first times I ever saw my father cry, and actually one of the only times I ever saw him cry as he was leaving the house. And for the next few years, just repeat that cycle. It was the same thing over and over again, them physically fighting and him getting kicked out of the house. And for me... As a young child, that wasn't the relationship that I wanted, but I didn't know what a healthy one was. So that's why I pretended I sang on Thank God It's Friday soundtrack. I'm very proud that I lied about that. And that I stole when I was younger at jobs because I always felt that I didn't have enough, that I had to do more to have these things. And I got to the point where I couldn't figure out why the lying was happening. So I, I read books on lying, pathological lying, asking questions as to why I would lie so much. And it was always about this sense of elaboration. What's that word? Embellish. I was always told, you embellish, you make up. And when it came time to write my memoir, I thought to myself, how do I go between embellishment and telling the truth? And then when I heard people tell stories about rewrite your new narrative, I'm like, ooh, I can do that because I, I lie well. And then I thought, wait a minute, though. Is a lie in service of the life you want to live or the life you lived? And then I realized all the lies were about things I was ashamed about, things that I, I, I realize I've said this and it's hard to explain this, but there's something insidious that happens to gay men my age when you spent your entire childhood living an absolute lie and not be able to tell the truth about who you really are. I realize I go on about this, but there's a strange thing that occurs when you are terrified of divulging the truth of who you are. So you, you make up lies to hide who you are. It is gay who I am. It's part of me. It's not who I am. It is who I am, but it's not who I am. So this fumbling about that I'm doing right now to find this is to say that there's an effect it has on a person. So when I used to lie, yes, I like Erica. Yes, I like Monica. Yes, I like her. When the truth was, my attention was going elsewhere. Did you take money? No, I didn't take money. When I did take money, and that was a fuck you to my parents, of course, because of the way they were treating me. Did you go down to... Seattle when you said you didn't, did you study? It was always about these elaborate ways to try to find something better than the reality I was living, the life I was living. Like it was never, it wasn't good enough. So I had to make up something else. 
So growing up in a house where all I saw was struggle inside of a marriage, inside of a relationship, you know, now I can take a look back at it and I can say, well, they were both young. They both had no idea what they were doing. And they were trying to figure out themselves, let alone figure out a marriage. But back then, marriage equaled struggle to me. And so for many, many years, up until I would say even recently, all of my relationships, even the last marriage, was a struggle. And it has me thinking, was that something that I created? Was it something that I attracted? Was it something that I needed because that's what my definition of a relationship really was? And so now that I have that realization just now, (laughs) I can really take a look at that and say, no, it, it actually can be something that I construct and something that I feel something that I want as opposed to looking for struggle because that was the normalcy that I had had for all of those years. And how am I repeating that normalcy, air quotes, normalcy in every single relationship up until this point? So it has me really take a look at what I've been looking for, what I've been having. And it really takes the victim for me. It takes the victim out of it because I can choose something different now. That awareness piece is huge because now that I see that and now that I have that awareness or that picture that was painted a long time ago, I can actually do something different with it as opposed to this is what I need. Look at it as what is it that I want. What happened was that was a way to get through the trauma But then I ended up, it it had an adverse effect on me. It had ended up stalling me for most of my life. So as an adult, I didn't really do much with my life in my 30s and 40s because it turned inward, the lying, to where it caused me to not take action and not live how I wanted to live. It's, It's funny when I talk about this now and think about the mother, the mother, the mother. The mother is always like this... It's like a bobblehead in the back of a a truck. The mother, the mother, the mother. She never liked to admit that she was sick, but she was sick. That she had a pill problem, a booze problem. And I never liked to admit the fact when I was lying to myself that I was comfortable being gay, liked being gay, because I find being gay confusing. I find being a man confusing, even though it's starting to become clear now. Delusionally lying to yourself to create the person you want to versus lying to yourself to not see the truth of where the blank spots are. My mother could not go there. I couldn't go there. And now I'm willing to go there. But shredding away of a, of a lie and what a lie means has been something that has turned me away from the truth of who I really am for a very long time. Yeah. I have to tell you, that's absolutely beautiful. Really? And, and the reason why I, didn't I know say where that, I was going there for a it, it doesn't matter because you went to the perfect place. It, uh, he, you know, you know how we roll, right? So whatever, whatever is said is exactly what needed to be said because it was. So I had no idea where that. Was what going. what I love about that is there are plenty of people that are walking this earth right now, me included. Right, And I can think of probably everybody on this floor that at moments of their life, they feel like they are a lie, right? Meaning 
when you're in a room full of adults and you feel like the child, right? But you're showing up a certain way to be the adult when you already are the adult. There's there's a multitude of reasons why people lie, and the two that I heard from you was really to kind of cover up who you were, and on the flip side, to you lied so you would be the person that you wanted to be. So what I'm hearing is that there was quite a huge amount of being uncomfortable in your own skin and needing to know the answers, right? And I think a lot of times today, especially whenever it comes around sex, sexuality, gender, people tend to need to know what it is. Let me have the definition so that I can live within those confines. And I say confines purposefully. Well, that's like I recently read this small bit. Sandra Bernhardt was interviewed at like New Yorker magazine. She doesn't like being called lesbian. And if I would have heard that before, I would have thought, oh, get over yourself. Then I heard what she's saying like, you know, she had other words like fabulous and, and like worldly or uh, social. She had fun words that were more descriptive of her. And I now understand this idea about labels because I didn't before. But the the lie to say that I'm comfortable – that I've never fit into really, I feel a subculture of gay culture. I never feel like I've belonged anywhere. I don't know where I belong. You look at me, daddy, and you look at me definitely not twink, but you look at me like, I'm not going to wear a leather harness. Mm-hmm. And you look at me like top, bottom, you look at me in between, and then so it's just very confusing. So the idea about lie, it's like everybody says they want you to be bare and be who you are, but they don't. Makes them uncomfortable. So I find that difficult because I'm not at the point where I just want to be who I am. Mm -hmm. But I find that doesn't always get accepted. And I mean, this even goes back to when I was talking about my dad and the lies that he told and and my mother with the past episode and her being a lesbian or bisexual, whatever it was. You know, you you tell these lies and, and all you're doing is putting yourself into another box as opposed to saying, this is what I want and this is really what I want to go for aside from any box. So uh, the feeling that I have is like my father you know, wanted a different relationship. And so he took somebody else on, which created a lie that created a lie for everybody else. And it's the same thing with, you know, sex, sexuality, gender, whatever it is you want to do, whatever job you want, you hate your job and you want to go to another one, whatever it might be. But it's the piece that is really, and I heard you say this, when you started lying to yourself, you knew it was really dangerous, right? And that is... I just want to focus on that for a minute. I couldn't agree with you more. Because while you're lying, and sometimes that 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 gray area, am I really telling the truth or am I lying? And sometimes you're just still trying to figure it out on what it is that you want. But there's an honesty that needs to happen. Um, and I find it within me too, of being honest about what it is that I really want outside of social confines, outside of opinions and judgments and thinking. And that's really easy to say. It's extremely difficult to actually get there. Well, okay, so we can't take it out of the confines because as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking the big lie, of course, is that everyone's got it all together. The big lie is that on social media, um, we talk about this incessantly, but we still feed the machine of acting like we've still got it so fucking together on social media and that we've got it all like, you know, everyone's so perfect and well lit. Like, you know, people have uh, entourages, follow them around for their fucking Instagram feed. Right. right? They light them thing. And and yet they they make art that says, I don't have it all together. Well, what is that? So what is that mix that you have there? So I think that the lie is that 
we, we, we try to perpetuate that we have it all together. And then the other lie is that we'd like to say, oh, no, I'm okay with the fact that I don't have it together. That's the next lie. When the truth is we're not okay with the fact that we don't have it together, that we are not okay with the fact that sometimes we don't know what we're doing. And when I'm sitting here talking with you guys right now, doing that little thing, thing where I was talking about my lying stuff, I was sweating here because I was thinking to myself, I don't know what I'm saying right now. And I like to know, you know, I like to be in control. I like to always look good. So the lie is that we're not okay with being uncomfortable. We're not okay with being insecure. We're not okay with being needy, right? And that, you know, <laughs> like what in broadcast news, my favorite line was when Albert Brooks said, wouldn't it be great if insecure and needy were attractive features? <laughs> <laughs> right? Absolutely. Why don't we yeah. put that on our Match.com or yeah. our Tinder account? But, I mean, it, there's <laughs> there's just like multiple layers of, of shit that we go under. And with those lies, don't forget, there comes a whole cycle of shame. Also, yes, but I'm gonna go back to what you said earlier because you're very good at this. So you talk a lot about how goal setting and things like that, and I've always been like, because that sounds like something out of a Tony Robbins seminar. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, to say what is it you want to be, who do you want to become, who do you want to create, and 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 understanding that the lie that you've been told to believe in of the limitations you have that you can't do that. See, my thought was, I was told in my former relationship, you're too sensitive, you're too emotional with your past, with your mental health stuff. You cannot become this big thing you want to become. Mm -hmm. You don't have the emotional wherewithal to withstand all the things that are going to come at you. So I believed that. So that was a lie based upon someone else's perception of me. The solitary lone thing I think here, and have you, I mean, you must think about this, is like, it's up to us at the end of the day to speak to ourselves and get ourselves going. Only so many books and so many seminars and so many people and so many pastors and preachers can help us. We've got to be able to find the truth that we want to align with of who we really are born out of the lie that we were taught about who we are. But also understanding that that's fluid. For me, and this is how I look at it, right? So who I am is a mosaic of a multitude of different things. Mosaic, good word. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I love a wordy woman. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really that's really it. So, and we've yeah. talked a little bit about this before, is where we can pull those different pieces of the mosaic, right? So when you look at a mosaic and you stand back, you see the entire picture. When you come forward, you see these little micro pictures put together that make up that giant picture, well, okay, right? So, and so, so that, that's how, yeah. They keep so going. Yeah. this so this is where I'm going with this is that. Stop being so fucking hard on yourself, number one. You may change tomorrow because something happened that informed to change your decision today. Just speak about the hard thing. Just, just add mother, 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 mother. Just, right. But just really, it's be honest. So when you're speaking to yourself in your head and you're like, you know, I really want this relationship because he's got good money. He he has a great job. He's, he's got his shit together. He's hung. He's whatever. And at the end of the day, right, you're going down your checklist of what looks, you know, correct. But in your head, you're going, but this just doesn't feel right. There's something really wrong here. And people will mask that with all the stuff that looks pretty. And so what I'm saying, at the end of the day, if you can take a look at that and say, okay, I'm telling myself a fucking lie. I already know what the answer is, but I keep covering it up to make it look good or to make me look good or so that I don't look like a failure or whatever it might be. That's where it starts getting muddy. And that's also where I believe people start losing themselves. Mm. When they can't be honest 
And this is even inside your own head. Well, that's because when we can't admit own everything, like everything that comes into our life, everything that happens, we ask for it. We have to own everything. So when you're saying watching the lie to yourself and you're saying conjuring thoughts or hearing thoughts and all that sort of stuff, it's up to us to find a way to, and this is always stuff that's helped me, align emotionally with what it is that we want to create, who we want to create, who we want to become. Because those people that are living the lives that we see from the outside seem to be doing what we want to do. They feel a certain way. You know, their world, it's easy for them because they're surrounded by all this, even though they have tremendous demands. So when we talk about lying to yourself, it's it's lying to yourself to the degree that you don't really understand that the internal gut instinctual stuff that guides you is really all you need to listen to. And that if you aren't having any faith, which sometimes I go up and down with, and you aren't having any trust, it's up to us to know that we're the ones that are causing that sort of sort of disconnect and that we've got to be the one that's got to find the thoughts that bring us back to that connection. Absolutely. Uh, it, this is so perfect because I was speaking to my friend Erin over the weekend, and she says, you know, whenever I get really riled up and my anxiety is like at a 10 and everything else, you know what I do? I said, what do you do, Erin? She says, I'm dead. I play dead. I said, well, you got to explain what that means. So she had gotten into a massive accident, and she ended up going through a windshield, and she basically was dead. They had to do open-heart surgery, and, and she was very young, and she was actually modeling. And so she says, I just remember sitting in the hospital room for weeks, and I had the excuse that I was sick and I couldn't do anything. And she goes, do you understand how freeing that was for me? So now, when I'm up against it, something's going on with my life, I will literally lay there close my eyes, and play dead. And what that means is it's really stripping away the responsibilities that you have in your life. All of the should've, could've, would've, all of the I need to keep up with the Joneses, all the bullshit on social media, all of it, stripping away all of it so she could get to that place where she was a blank canvas and said, okay, from nothingness, what is it that I want to create? the violence in the household and how you saw that and how the connecting of the dots you said between all the other things about, you know, the footsies and what have you. And of course, I want to make a joke about a foot fetish. Um, but, but that violence from your mother to your father and that violence that you see, there's sometimes when we talk about these things, you're kind of like, oh, well, it was no big deal and I just got through it. And part of me is like, how the fuck could that have possibly been the case? Like your resilience is phenomenal. But there's also to you as a person, um, and this is the reason why I love you, of course, there's a fragility that I don't really feel sometimes people really understand how bare it is with you. Like you're very bare. And you probably trust some of the wrong people sometimes, which makes me get very defensive And with, for you. Um, but that's also makes me think as your friend, I, you know, I always want to lovingly, kindly hold your heart in my hands because I sense there's a part of you that is very, very tender. So when I ask you about these things, you're like, oh, I moved on into the present. Part of me is like, I don't know if I buy it. You can buy it, but at the end, the same time, oh, wow. Because, honey, what you went through... I'm going to be honest with you. When I heard your story today, I saw it all. 
and the way with which you went through it, sweetheart, it is an absolute miracle of God that you're sitting here looking at me right now. But the fragility piece, when yes, you say sweetheart. that, it's it's. So I have these dual sides. I've got the I've got the I'm an M and M. I am. I'm such an M M&M. and I've got this hard candy shell. But all you need to do is actually, you just need to suck on me <laughs> for a little bit, <laughs> for a little bit, and then I just melt. Yeah, you do. And and you it's do. very funny because if if you had five minutes outside of my appearance and five minutes outside of the first shit talk that people normally do, you'll see it. It's really right there. Um. And yes, I did make it through that. The fragility is the piece that it's not something that's apparent up front. And I've learned over time that I'm okay with that. But also understanding that the first part of that hard candy shell isn't necessarily a defense mechanism, and it is. It's almost like finding old artillery shells on the ground, right? It's still there but it's not meant to be used as a defense mechanism anymore. And that took me many, many years to move through. I know. So before, you, I was just a gobstopper. Like there was just no, until the very, very middle, could you actually bite into it, mm-hmm. right? And so now it's become, I've become an M&M. But yes, it was really, you know, thinking that my mother was this strong woman when she— started the violence, it shifted a bit for me because I didn't see her as a strong woman, just violent. Also, you saw the world as something you couldn't trust. And the focal point of the protection and nurturing for you was now absent and violent and unpredictable. And we share that because my mother was wildly unpredictable. So I really, in some ways, do not feel that things are always going to work out and things are going to be okay because she got into me. So when I say I don't want to be my mother, I don't want to be a woman that expects things to fall apart. There's a part of your fragility, your tenderness, that is so acute, so raw, so real, so right there. Maybe it's because it's me. So you know you can show that to me. But I sensed it from the moment we talked on the phone that first time before that interview with Paul Schrader. Well, that's good news. Yeah. I, I love to hear that. That is such a huge compliment. Well, you had you. But, <laughs> Whereas before, I would have said fragile. I'm not fragile. I don't know who the fuck you're talking <laughs> yeah. about because that's not me. Why well, I, I was very charming that day too, because <laughs> because I could sense and you Always. were just cackling away, and so, <laughs> but that sort of blending of a M M&M on a nice warm summer day, the outsides kind of softening a little bit, so the insides there. Don't let many people suck on you. <laughs> they don't they don't deserve that moist center. How is that for uh, they, <laughs> Ian's covering his eyes right now. <laughs> and so I just love the idea of playing dead. If you were, what what kind of life would you construct outside of the one that you've built based on other people's wants, needs, judgments, or opinions? You're talking about when you talk about nothingness playing dead and that story about her. It's like also the idea that this is why meditation matters. I've learned uh, in a huge manner. It puts you in the place to sort of hear what that answer is. Because if the truth of the matter is, and there's only one way to look at this, I I have learned if the answer is right in front of your freaking nose as to what to do, um, we can't see it though. So if Mm -hmm. we can't see it, we got an emotional place where we can see it. So how do we feel? Well, we don't feel from nothing. We feel from somewhere, right? So if we're in charge of how we feel, then we got to look, if we're feeling something at the time, 
there's a multitude of reasons, primary being our thoughts, which are things that we always struggle with, right? But being being inordinately obsessed with how we feel, like making that the primary focus, because if we're clear about that, everything else kind of falls into into play. Personally, for me with anxiety, I always say to people, you know, I clean the house, I go for a workout. I used to have, like you, tremendous panic attacks, you know. So I've been there, done that. Recently had one recently where I called you, mm-hmm. uh, and I was like, oh, "This is I'm not I'm not relaxing now." And I was overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm like, "This is not working right now. What's happening?" You were the most relaxed in a panic attack I think I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't feel it at the time, but yes, it, I mean, it's it's. Interesting and also understanding that if you don't have the answer right now, if you don't know what it is, it's absolutely okay. Because what happens a lot of the times, and I see this a lot with clients and even myself, that they don't have that clear defined answer. It's like watching a Dallas episode where everything's fuzzy and nothing has sharp lines, right? But it's going to happen and that's going to be okay. The idea behind it is that maybe you don't have all the information that you need. I did a I did I did one of those escape rooms with one of the groups mm-hmm. that I do. And so we went in there and one of one of the clients were up at they were up at this board and they only had two puzzle pieces on the board. And she kept moving them around and then somebody would go and lock another clue somewhere else and then bring another puzzle piece and she would have three now. But the entire time she stuck herself at the board figuring out with these only three pieces what the answer was. And it was so perfect because how many times are we trying to figure out the answer and we don't have all of the puzzle pieces yet? It may not be there yet. And it's okay too. Well, here, and then here's the lie. It's being okay with the fact that we're not comfortable with the fact that we're supposed to sit here and be okay with the fact that we don't have all the puzzle pieces yet and that we're annoyed and pissed off as hell and that we're angry and rageful and want to break something because of the fact that it's not showing up yet. Where the hell is it? It's, 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 be, it's the lie telling us that we're okay mm-hmm. and that we're okay and that we're not happy. You know, It's like saying, okay, so don't lie to yourself that you have a problem, okay? Then don't lie that you're pissed off that you have a problem and don't lie that you want to kick and scream that you don't want to have to do the work to fix the problem. Problem. Just just admit that that's what's really going on with you and how you're really feeling. Like with men, of course, it's the rage thing. You know, men do not want to admit how angry they really are because, you know, they don't understand the creative force of it. They just think of it as destructive. So that whole idea behind lying to – you know, we know what the problem is. But it's like I know someone right now in my life who's close to me who's struggling tremendously with a huge health issue. And it's gotten to the point where – there's surgery. It's really quite, and it's a thing that's a lifestyle thing, right? Mm. And they just cannot go to where they need to go to, even though they're now at the point where they have surgery and are going to be laid out for months because of something that's been coming down the pike for years and they just can't change. So you have to ask yourself, what is it that they are lying to themselves about to put themselves into such a situation where they're in so much pain? And this person, by the way, is always sunny, always happy, always rosy. That's a lie. That's mm-hmm. not really how they feel. When I was told finally one day, stop acting like you think you want to feel and be honest with how you really feel, that that was my thing in life, then I realized that that's how I could change. And that's really the piece. I mean, it, <laughs> when people don't have a positive feeling, I love the word positive and negative, that's automatically a judgment, right? That wasn't a, that wasn't a positive so thought. I have to move beyond that. was that. a negative thought. I need to be more positive. What the fuck does that mean? I don't what think I people still say. talk just, like that. They do. They do? They do. Yeah. But okay, right. this, I was in Oklahoma when I heard it last. So again, right. 20 years prior, yeah, right? Yeah, but anyway, yeah. but the idea is when some, when, 
and I tell all my clients this, when you're angry, be fucking angry. Yeah. Allow Let it. it out. Allow it. Be there, roll with it, and yeah. then say, okay, time's up. Time for me to shift and let's move on with my life. When it comes up again, go in it, but don't half-ass it. Well, it's like the woman that said that she sort of it was death to it. If you just surrender to the emotion, mm-hmm. it doesn't have control over you. Then you, it changes. It moves. Yeah. It cha- you feel it. It moves. It changes. It's like uh, it fluctuates like light, like um, guitar strings. I don't know why I was thinking guitar strings, but guitar strings. You know what I mean? It's like it's a, it's a emotions, a moving, changing, evolving thing inside. Right. And you know? But I'm going back to don't half-ass it. A lot of them will say, okay, I cried a little bit. I feel better. Thank you. No. You actually don't. You let the tap out a little bit, but the pressure behind that is still there. Like, mm-hmm. go all out. You're angry. I'll tell my 15-year-old, you're angry. Go in your room, punch a pillow, scream, go do what you need to do. But let's not do this halfway because all you're doing is letting the tap out just a little bit for two days down the road. You're going to grenade again. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be a thing. So let it all out. It's okay that you're there. It's okay that you're feeling these ne- these thinking, these negative, air quotes, negative thoughts, which is bullshit. Everybody has them. But, but, and it's also say to yourself, it's okay that I'm not okay with this. That's why I say it a lot. Yeah. It's okay that you're not okay. Don't say you're okay if you're not okay. Just don't be what you are. But what's great about the mo- that rage that you talked about, a rage has great power behind it. You get shit done. Mm-hmm. Like when you're pissed off, you get shit done. You do things. You can do things with that emotion. Depression's the worst because that's the thing that makes you just – there's no point. So I'd rather – because really depression is rage unexpressed. So if you just feel the rage, you're not going to feel as much depression. Yeah, it's it's interesting because what we're really talking about is coming back to a place where we're more childlike. Children don't sit there and hold their emotions in. They're not sitting here worried about lying. I'm thinking like three or four-year-old. You know, they just – they flow with it. Yeah, you they're, ever talk, they're you ever talk to a kid and want them to respond? If they don't want to respond, they don't respond. Yeah. They stare at you. Yeah, they go to parties and they're like, hey, mom, I'm bored. I want to leave. Shit. You know how many times I would love to sit there and say, you know what? I'm bored. I'm going to leave now. <laughs> yeah. I've had skin stuff and I've had kids saying, what the hell's that? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas adults are pretending it's nothing. They're just like, what's that? Or if you have a kid, are you having a good day? They just stare at you. They just stare at you. Yeah. And you're expecting this automatic response. They're like, why am I going to give something back to you if I'm not feeling it? Yeah. Because yeah. as adults, we have these automatics. This is what we should say now. This is what we should and shouldn't do. Because we're we're lying to ourselves that we're so in touch with our the value of our emotions. It's not just feeling. It's the value of the emotion. Mm-hmm. So if I say to people, just feel what you're feeling, they're going to be like, why would I feel that? What's the point? It's the value of the emotion because that tells you where you're at. How you feel tells you where you're at. And emotions are the only currency that matter. They're the currency of our lives. Hey, so we know there was a lot of information in this last episode. So if you'd like to reach out to us, we're at stripthepodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail about what's going on in your life, 201-685-0828. Stripped is co-hosted by Jennifer Ho and Michael C. Bryan. It is co-created by Michael C. Bryan, Jennifer Ho, and Ian Hamilton. It is produced by Ian Hamilton and Mariana Trevino. It is recorded and edited by Rich Cerbini at Hangar Studios in New York City. 